0: What do we all have in common? Is there anything at all that we all have in common? Because the reality is we're all over the map in here. Can we admit that? I mean, some of you are here because you really do want to be here. Uh, Some of you may be visiting Indiana Wesleyan today, and that's why you're here. And then there's some of you who... I feel like the best way to say this is you're just more spenders than you are savers, if that makes sense. And that's why you're here today. But regardless of why you're here, I mean, we have, we have freshmen up to seniors, we have professors, we have other administration, but what if I told you that every Christian in here possesses something so powerful that it could help alter eternity? And this thing that every Christian has is a tool that can be used to reach people for Christ. Keep that thought in the back of your mind as you turn to Philippians 1 today. We're going to be in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. And just to give you a little bit of a background, the book of Philippians is written by Paul to the church in Philippi. But the catch is he's writing from prison. And the specific passage that we're going to be looking at, it can almost be broken down into two different parts. With the first half of the passage, Paul's sort of giving his personal testimony, like explaining what he's been through. And then it transitions into a more corporate charge for all of us. So I'm going to start reading in verse 12. I'm going to read the first three verses, and you guys can follow along. It says, And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters... That everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ, and because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Now, from an outsider's perspective, it seems as though Paul has failed. Like, he did a lot of really good things for the church in the first century. He continues to write to these churches, encouraging them. But, like, next to being dead, being locked up in prison is the worst spot you can find yourself in. But yet, when we read this text, that's not the feeling that we get at all. It's almost like, how many of you guys, you've ever been with a group of friends, and maybe you all just got in trouble, but something clearly bad has happened. And there's that one person who the current situation just doesn't seem to click with them. Like You're getting yelled at by your parents and your little brother's off in the corner joking around and it's like, like, why are you happy right now? Like This is a bad situation. You need to be sad. That's the feeling that we almost get when we read this about Paul. And I think part of the reason is because whether we realize it or not, I think sometimes we subconsciously think that God's goodness somehow has to do with whatever we're going through. We think to ourselves that if... I'm doing good, if my family's doing well financially, if Cain and Coffee hits the game winner and we go to the championship, then surely we're doing something right. Then God is good. However, sometimes we think that if I'm struggling, if I'm not getting into the school I want to go to, then I must be doing something wrong. God must be mad at me. And I've got to tell you guys, that's a conclusion that we just cannot reach. I think one of the biggest things that we can learn from Paul's example right here is that God's goodness is independent from our circumstances. God's goodness is completely independent from our circumstances. And this is so important to understanding our world today. Because if you turn on the news or you read about these terrible shootings that are taking place all over the world if you think God's goodness is attached to our circumstances, then you'd reach the conclusion that our God isn't good, and that simply is not true. And this is something that, it really took me a while to understand. I played basketball in high school, and if you guys want to talk about a vibrant prayer life, you should have seen me after we won a big game. I mean, I'm telling you guys, I'd get down on my knees. I could thank God for everything. I was, I was thanking God for relatives who I didn't even know what their names were. I could thank God for everything. But then on the flip side, it's like when we wouldn't win or when I wouldn't pray, play as well, sometimes I'd like do a few second prayer. Sometimes I'd just skip it all together. And it wasn't until a few years later I was reading this article by a well-known Christian author, writer named Max Licato. And he was basically comparing these two principles. He was comparing courageous joy and contingent joy. Now, contingent joy is what I was displaying with basketball. Contingent joy is when the source of your joy is rooted in anything here on earth. It can be something as insignificant as basketball, or it can be a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, classes, you name it. But when the source of your joy is rooted in something here on earth, however that thing makes you feel is going to control your joy on a day-to-day basis. Now on the flip side, courageous joy is when the source of your joy is in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Now although your circumstantial happiness will vary depending on the day, depending on what you're going through, that inner peace, that inner joy feeling that you have isn't going anywhere. Something we have to realize though is that having courageous joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, so having courageous joy when you find yourself in the pit of life is always a choice before it becomes a feeling. You're not gonna wake up wanting to put your trust in Jesus, wanting to have this courageous sense of joy when you find yourself in a spot like Paul. And you might be sitting here today saying, you know, that makes sense, but, but Jackson, you, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. To which I'd say, you're absolutely right, I don't. But what I do know is that Paul is in prison. And he's showing us that, you guys, even in the worst spot you can find yourself in, it's still possible to have this sense of courageous joy. It's still possible to be able to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Something that I think we have to acknowledge here, though, is that God can absolutely perform miracles. I've seen him in my life. I'm sure many of you have seen him in your life. And I know for a fact that Paul's seen him in his life. Because just a few years earlier... Paul was in another prison with another guy named Silas, and you can go read it in Acts 16 on your own time, but they're in the prison, and God literally sends an earthquake, and he breaks their chains. He frees them from prison. So although Paul knows that he can, like what he's saying here is we can't bank on God to perform miracles in our life, but instead what we have to do is have faith even in the midst of them. If you guys almost like read between the lines with me, what Paul is saying in this first part is, God, although I believe you can, although I know that you can because you've done it before, I'm still okay if you don't. That's, that's what courageous faith looks like. I think another one of the big things that we can take out of Paul's example is that faith does not change your circumstances but it opens your eyes to the ways he's working through them. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ does not guarantee a physical change in your circumstances. I think one of the most foolish things that we can do as Christians is make a direct connection between what we sense is a person's level of faith and the outcome of their prayer request. Placing your faith in the Lord does not mean you're never going to suffer. It actually means quite the opposite. However, what that faith does do is it allows you to see those same situations differently. How many of you guys liked the polar vortex we experienced a couple months ago? Did anyone else like We got a day and a half off school, so I expected more hands than that. But I, I loved it. I remember I woke up on, I think it was the Wednesday morning that we didn't have class, and before my roommate and I watched five movies back-to-back, I was sitting there drinking my coffee, watching you guys walk to your 750s, and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is like a bittersweet moment for me. Because although I'm really excited that we have the day off, in all likelihood, this is my last snow day ever. And so I was thinking about that, and... I just started thinking back on all the snow days that we had growing up in our house. And something that you need to know about the Murphy House is that whenever school got canceled, whenever we had a snow day, you didn't even have to ask what we were doing. Everybody knew what we were doing, and we were going sledding. And I feel like when I say we were going sledding, I feel like I need to explain it a little bit better to you guys. Because when we went sledding, we went to a place that we named Bloody Mountain. And you might wonder how it got that name, and I'll tell you. Through our eyes, it wasn't a hill, it was a mountain. And we went about seven or eight years as a family. And every single year, we didn't miss any years, somebody fell off their sled and bled. And so that's how I got the name, Bloody Mountain. And I remember one particular time, I was going with some of my friends, and we had just gotten our license, we were excited, we had it all planned out, and we're going there that morning And the way that it's set up is you basically just drive 10, 15 minutes out into the country. It kind of starts to get a little bit hilly and then you can't see anything. And there's one big hill that you come up over. And then right when you get to the top, you can see it off in the horizon. And so we're excited. We're talking on the way there like, man, I hope it's not crowded. Everybody has off school today. And so we're going, we come up over the hill and there's hardly anyone there. And we started cheering, man, we're so excited, this is gonna be awesome. We get closer. I remember I pull into the parking lot, and then just as I'm putting the car into park, we look out onto our beloved hill, and we realize why there's nobody there today. Somebody had put 10 to 15 hay bales scattered throughout the hill to stop people from sledding. And we were devastated. We started talking, we're like, man, what are we going to do now? This was, I mean, we had this plan for, ever since school got canceled the night before, we were all looking forward to it. And then when we look out onto our hill, I say our hill, but when we look out onto the hill, we notice there's probably four or five other guys our age using their sleds as shovels and moving all of the snow in front of the hay bales. And then one at a time, the light bulbs just start forming above our heads. That's genius right there. And so we got out of the car, we went and we made a few new friends. And I'm telling you guys, that was the greatest snow day ever. Now whether you realize it or not, I really believe that this is the same way Paul wants us to view problems in our life. Because let me ask you, what in your life seems like a problem? Do you need to stop praying that God gets rid of, but you just need to view it with a different perspective? What in your life are you convinced that it's a hay bale? You are convinced that it's been put there to trip you up, to hinder you from doing something. But the reality is, instead of always trying to avoid it, you need to embrace it you need to make it part of your message. What from your past, what from your present situations can God really maybe use? If I could just like boil it all down to kind of one question, it would just be this. What is your message? It's gonna be different for everyone, but once you've identified that, you've gotta ask why does that matter? And I think Paul sort of gives us an answer later in the passage, so I'm going to read the rest of it. It's Philippians 1, starting in verse 15. It says, It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ, they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Because whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. So all of Paul's letters in the New Testament are personal but not private, meaning they're written to a specific person or a specific group of people. But you and I in the 21st century can look back on these letters And we can gain things that apply to us as well. So when he talks about preachers, I don't want you guys to think about that as like standing up here giving a sermon. But when he says preaching Christ, it's just telling others about Christ, living for Christ. It's something we're all called to do. And so what he's doing here is he's separating Christians into two camps. Those who do preach Christ, those who don't. It's just simply two different groups. He's taking out the middle ground. And he doesn't talk a whole lot about those who don't preach Christ, but I can tell you it's not a group that you want to be a part of. In Galatians 1, Paul writes and he says, "...let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed." So don't be in that group. Be in the group that actually preaches Christ, that tells others about Christ. And so what Paul's doing here is he's elevating action over motives. And you might say, hold on a minute. I thought we were supposed to do everything with a sincere heart. To which I would say, we absolutely are. But the way that Paul wants us to understand this is almost like two different levels. Level one is doing the action, telling people about Christ. Level two then is your motives, how you're doing it. Level two is absolutely important, but until you get past level one, until you're actually doing it, your motives really don't matter. And this is actually, whether you realize it or not, the way that you and I are wired to think. We value action over motives. And let me prove it to you. Imagine that you're about to go into the hospital, for a big operation, this is terrifying. But just imagine it: you're laying on the table, and two doctors walk in, and they, they overbooked your your operation, so you have to choose which doctor is going to operate on you. Doctor one is the world-renowned surgeon. He's done tens of thousands. He travels the world, speaking, writing books. The reason he does it, though, is because he wants to be known as the greatest ever. Purely selfish motives. Now you have Dr. 2, Dr. 2 is almost done with his residency, he's never actually done an operation, but he's read a lot of really good books, he graduated from Indiana (laughs) Wesleyan, and his motives, the reason he's doing this is because he genuinely wants to help people. I guarantee you every single one of us is picking Dr. 1. And that's not to say that motives don't matter, but you and I just place a higher value on action than we do motives. Now, I feel like I need to almost add a disclaimer. I'm not saying that motives aren't important. So I don't want you guys to leave out of here thinking like my number one takeaway is that I don't care. it doesn't matter how I do it. Like God still cares about your motives. Paul still cares about your motives. And one of his other letters, he was writing to Timothy and In the very beginning of the book, he's basically, he's explaining to him why he's writing it. He's like, he's instructing Timothy to stay away from these false teachers. And in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. And not just love, but love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. So motives are important, but they're just secondary to action. So now, if we just rewind a little bit, we've now established that Paul values action over motives. You and I value action over motives. And I would even say that I think Jesus Christ valued action over motives. In the book of Matthew, Jesus gives what's probably thought of as the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And he covers almost every topic that you can imagine. And then I think it's interesting, he gets to the very end of his sermon, and he says, the wise man is going to build his house on the rock, meaning the wise man's going to take what I've given you, and you're going to do it. He didn't say why. He didn't say how to do it. He just said, if the wise person is going to take this and you're going to do it. As I was sort of wrestling with this text in Philippians, I was trying to figure out, you know, why is this so important? I think I was kind of trying to make the connection between why does Paul talk about preaching Christ right after giving his personal testimony? And I think there's times where we really, we have to dig in Scripture to find our answers. I mean, it's tough. We have to go to your your pastor. You have to go to the Dr. Shanks of your life. And you have to say, look, I don't understand this. Help me understand what Paul is saying here. However, I also believe that there's times where we're looking so hard for the answer. We're digging so hard to find this truth that we're looking for that the reality is it's right in front of our faces and we're looking right through it. And the reason that I say that is because I think the reason that Paul talks about Christ right after giving his personal message is because Paul understands that Jesus Christ is the only reason his message matters. You guys do realize that Jesus Christ is the only reason Our messages matter. I want you guys to think with me for a moment. Imagine all of the events or situations of your life that would be thought of as like bad by our culture. Whether this was like growing up with abusive parents whether it's an addiction that you've struggled with for years. Maybe it's that, like, right now, you feel like you're jumping from major to major to major, and you feel like you weren't created with any real purpose. That's a tough one. Whatever it is that you're thinking of, whatever, like, bad thing it is, and I mean, it's, it's bad for good reason, though, Right? Can we all acknowledge that there's nothing inherently good about any of these things I'm talking about? There's nothing good on the surface level. However, that all changes when you become a Christian. Because you guys, when you give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time ever, what used to just be baggage and burdens from your past are filled with the Holy Spirit, and those exact same things are now part of your message, and they can be used to push the gospel forward. I'm convinced that there's some people here, and you've just got to hear this. You've got to stop buying into the lie of Satan that's saying, for whatever reason, whatever's happened in your past is somehow so bad that it can't be used as part of your message. That's not true, and I'm telling you, your your message matters because it's directly linked to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your message matters, you guys, and because of that, you have to share it. You have to do what Paul's doing. There's people in your life that need it. There's people in your life I'm never going to talk to. Your pastor will never preach through because they're never going to walk through the doors of the church. But God's put them in your life for a reason. He's put them in your circle of influence for a reason. Every Christian in this room has a message. And your message is a powerful tool that can be used to reach people for Christ. And I think one of the coolest things about this is that even if you're not a Christian, God's already writing your message. Whether you see it, whether you feel it, whether you even believe it or not, I'm convinced that God's already writing your message. I'm going to end with a story. And it's a story that I heard a long time ago, and it really has stuck with me, and it always makes me think about sharing my message. It's a story that my dad told me, and shortly after my parents were married, they moved down to Kentucky, and my dad spent some time volunteering at the Kentucky Veterans Center. And he struck up a really cool relationship with a guy named Charlie, and Charlie was a double amputee from serving our country overseas, But that didn't stop him from playing pool. He and my dad loved playing pool. And they'd play pool most days. And he kept, he would always go after his classes and he said that he got there one day and they'd talk about everything from cars to hunting to fishing, you name it. And he got there one day and he went to Charlie's room. And Charlie wasn't in there. There were some people cleaning some stuff, which it wasn't anything too out of the ordinary. And So he went to his room, and he wasn't there, and he went down to the cafeteria to look for him. He couldn't find him there. He wasn't playing pool. And my dad went back to the room, and he waited outside for for a little bit. And Charlie never came. And so he eventually went to the lobby, and he said, Hey, uh, I'm here for Charlie. I come most days. We hang out, play pool. And my dad told me that they had to sit him down. And they grabbed his hand and they said, I'm so sorry that we have to tell you this, but Charlie passed away in the middle of the night. And what you don't know is my dad told me that he always felt God putting it on his heart to share his message with Charlie. He always did, and he kind of always just put it on the back burner. My dad told me that he went out to his car in the parking lot, he broke down and he promised God that he would never miss an opportunity like that again. But I think the reason that this story can be hard for me to talk about and tell at times is because this isn't just my dad's story. But this is my story. I had two friends in high school who, man, we did everything together. We played basketball together, went to the movies together. We even went went sledding and turned hay bales into ramps together. And I think we talked we talked about everything man even the things I know we shouldn't have been talking about except I never brought up the one thing I knew I really should. I never shared my message with them. And it's really it, although they're still alive I just don't have the relationship I once had. The influence isn't there anymore and It's something that I kind of have to wake up and just give back to God every day, but can I tell you the most hopeful thing that I hold on to? Is that no matter what your past is, in terms of sharing your message, you can start today. You can start right now, and then tomorrow, and then the next day, and every day for the rest of your life, you can commit to sharing your message with people. I thank God for second chances. So in just a moment, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to make a commitment. And the commitment is, honestly, it's really simple. It's just that when God gives you opportunities to share your message, you'll do it and you won't even think twice about it. Because I think the the truth is, a lot of us, when we hear this message, we think to ourselves like, yeah, absolutely, that's something I want to do. I want to share my message. But so many times when we wait for those situations, when we wait for those opportunities and then we try to make the decision, it's so easy for us to come up with excuses. It's so easy for us to come up with those excuses. But I firmly believe that if we decide today, before we go to our summer camps, our jobs, our summer internships, if we decide right now that when God opens up those doors of opportunity, we're not just gonna step through them, and we're gonna run through them. If that's the commitment we make right now, I'm telling you guys, that's when the gates of hell won't stand a chance against us. So I'm gonna give you guys a chance to make that commitment, but if you only remember one thing from today, remember this, it's that your message matters. And when you combine your personal message with the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, it takes on value and you'll have the opportunity to affect someone's life for all of eternity. Will you bow your heads with me? If you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, you know what Jackson, I think, I think that's a commitment I'm ready to make today. I I wanna decide right now that when God gives me those opportunities, I'm taking them. If that's you, would you just raise your hand wherever you are right now? Yep. Keep them up. Keep your hands up. Don't miss this opportunity. All right, now if your hand is up, will you open your eyes and look at me for just a second? Would you take out your cell phone? Take it out of your pocket, take it out of your bag. And I want you to text someone that you know and trust and just say, Will you help keep me accountable? You don't need to explain it all to them, you can explain the rest to them after chapel, you can call them after your classes, but I want you to text someone you know and trust and just say, will you help keep me accountable? Get the conversation started right now before you leave. And as you guys are finishing that up, I'm going to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the opportunity to look back on the life of Paul, and just realize the importance of what sharing our message means. I mean, it was 2,000 years ago, God, and we're still talking about one man's message. God, I ask that as we leave this campus this summer, as we go into whatever it is that you're calling us to do, God, that you would fill us with the strength and the confidence that we need to boldly share our message with people. God, we are no longer slaves to fear. We love you and we pray this all in your name. Amen.